just a long goodbye And it happens every day When some passerby Invites your eye to come her way Even as she smiles a quick hello You let her go You let the moment fly Too late you turn your head You know you said the long goodbye Can you recognize Oh, I could listen to the entirety of that And fortunately for you out there If you enjoy the melody You'll be hearing it a lot today And when you watch the movie The Long Goodbye You hear it a lot There are, I don't know Somewhere in the document I have here uh, There is information about the number of different versions Of this John Williams melody With lyrics by uh, Johnny Mercer That get played over the course Of this L.A. noir movie So here to talk about that And about the pleasures And perhaps perils Of rewatching things well, anybody, any pr- private detective would be proud to have her tailing them. Raquel Benedict is the most be- dangerous woman in speculative fiction, the host of the Right Good podcast, R-I-T-E space G-U-D. Uh, he doesn't need a cat. He's got a girl. Gene Seymour uh, is a writer, professional spectator, pop culture maven, and jazz geek. He's the mayor of jazz on the Colin McEnroe show. Uh, and Helder Mira, he still hasn't paid Dr. Verringer's bill. Helder Mira is multimedia producer at Trinity College, co-host of the So Pretentious podcast with Vivian Nabetta. So here we are to talk about the long goodbye before the panel gets going. Let's hear a little bit of this. You are going to hear Elliot Gold as Philip Marlowe, uh, and uh, Dylan Rays, who picks out our bumper music and is occasionally the technical producer of this show, said as he researched uh, for his job, he said he came to the conclusion that Elliot Gold could strike a match on a wet glass. Uh, So uh, he's Philip Marlowe. He's been uh, hauled aside by a couple of uh, police detectives uh, over a murder. And here, Cat is A1. You gainfully employed, Marlowe? I don't know. Where do you work? Yeah, yeah, I heard you. I understand English, believe it or not. I'm a private detective. I have my own agency. Marlowe, you know a white guy by the name of Terry Lunix. Oh, yeah? Who says I do? His address book and that yellow bomb downstairs in your garage. So? Marlowe, just answer the question. You want to know what I did last night? Mm-hmm. Well, my cat woke me up in the middle of the night. He was really hungry. So I went into fixing his favorite kind of cat food, curry brand, you know, it's the only kind he eats. And I was out of it. So I fixed something else up and the cat clawed the hell out of me, just wouldn't touch it. So I, I went out to the uh, thrifty mart, you know, it's open 24 hours, to get switched the labels and the cans around and the son of a bitch cat just left. He Marlo, seen will you forget the goddamn cat? Is. Yeah, I know. Curry brand cat food, Marlo. Yeah, you got me? <laughs> so... So Raquel Benedict, irrespective of what you may or may not have thought about this movie, I think we know you well enough that you enjoyed those early scenes uh, of the cat and even attempting to fool the cat by scraping cat food from one can, an off-brand can, into the can of the brand that the cat prefers. That's a hard thing to express. That's such a pure cat owner moment. It's beautiful. (laughs) So uh, I've done that. Yeah, you have. (laughs) You've, you've attempted yeah. to deceive your cat. Um, all right. So this is the way you should own a dog. Dogs are just happy to have anything, you know. 
grass, a dead hedgehog, anything. So, um, so uh, Raquel, I'm just curious. Uh, you uh, are probably the newcomer to this 50-year-old film. So what did you make of it? I enjoyed it. Uh, it, it. It's a little tricky just because I'm so removed from the 1970s. A lot of it I'm having trouble figuring out. Is this satirical or is this just how was this normal for the 1970s? Like our femme fatale's wardrobe, every shot she's wearing this giant diaphanous about 20 pounds of fabric nightgown shaped gown. And I'm trying to figure out, is this intentionally over the top? Or is this just because she was living in California in the 1970s? (laughs) But it was such a wonderfully surreal experience watching this. Uh, just the wonderful, I think I loved the actor's ticks the most, the perpetual cigarette, how he's constantly lighting a cigarette and never even finishing a cigarette, just cigarettes just always appearing, the way the Mexican coroner just aggressively drinks his cup of coffee so, so hard <laughs> as a little gentle send up as as the little actor's, tri- uh, actor's ticks that are typical of this kind of film. Right. So and so Mr. Mayor Jean Seymour, um, I think she's uh, hitting on a couple of things that are, are really critical to Altman. One of them is, you know, if you look at Altman's oeuvre, you know, and this is sort of in the early stages of it, um, you know, this is obviously the man who made McCabe and Mrs. Miller and MASH and, uh, and Nashville and a whole bunch of other movies. Um, Don't forget Popeye. Oh, Popeye. Can we forget Popeye? Um, so oh, I but, can't. Never mind. Okay, <laughs> but no. I, I guess you know it's an interesting question. To what degree is at any moment Altman is capable of being satirical, and at any moment the little details, like the ones that Raquel just described, are incredibly important. These movies, more than most movies, I think we would both agree, are made up of details. Yeah. Well, when you when you look again, this was made in. Uh, I guess 19, it was filmed in 72, but released in 73. And when you see movies from that era, it's like you're peering over this tall wall where, where things like Star Wars and, 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 and all these other blockbusters we come to know as American movies just sort of tower over. When you have to sort of peer over to see what those movies were like and, 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 and just what just how distant they are from what we came to know. And, um, you know, when, when you say, I mean, it, it's kind of facile to say it was an anything goes kind of period, but that's what it was. It was it was a period when filmmakers seemed entitled just to throw anything at you. And Altman, um, and one of the thing, one of the reasons I revered Altman in, in those years was because his, his, his willingness to sort of let go and let loose came from a place that, because I am the mayor of jazz, I can say this, uh, seemed to be making it up as it go along, as it went along, while staying true to his own sense of story. The way a jazz musician stays close to the to the chord changes, even as he's inventing off the top. And uh, so this is why this is my own visceral reaction to it, and it remains my visceral reaction. But uh, you know, Raquel said that she wasn't sure whether to take it as a spoof. That's how a lot of people took it at the time. They didn't know what to make of it. They even had uh, a movie ad drawn by a Mad Magazine artist, (laughs) you know, as a way of saying, what is this? Well, I guess it's supposed to be a spoof, so let's have a Mad Magazine guy. And you know something? Seeing it again after all these years, 
This is the first time I actually just took it for what it was, a spoof, a blazing saddles of the private eye genre, which for whatever reason, I was misdirected from seeing the first time I saw it all those years ago. You know, you know, Helder, I feel like this could stay a somewhat open question. It's obviously a movie with a lot of comic notes to it, starting with the, the notes of the theme song, which are played by there are more than 10 different versions of the of the song. And sometimes the mere pressing of a doorbell will cause the first three or four notes uh, to come out. There's, I think, one unforgettable scene where a Mexican funerary band uh, is playing it in this very sort of mournful dirge-like way. There, there's a there's a security guard, or at least a guy in a booth, uh, to a private Malibu compound who who does impersonations for absolutely no reason to people who who pull up and, and, and need guidance or need to be told what to do. And 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 Gold does this one. Elliot Gold as Marlowe does this wonderful thing where he's being tailed, and and he says the guy behind me is uh, is a big Walter Brennan fan, and so the the security guard goes, well, you, you dig, never dig, you, you get to get your car over there. And they're just baffled hood who's been following Marlowe. So, Helder, I'm sorry for rambling, uh, but... <laughs> I mean, that's an all-minute trope right there. Right. Right? You're just going to ramble. And, uh, <laughs> I mean, that's... I'm agreeing with both of uh, Raquel and Gene, just how, you know, it's such a meta film. It, it, he Altman does what he does best. He takes what you're expecting a you know, private eye movie and an adaptation of, of a Chandler book, uh, and just turns it on its head and kind of plays with the whole genre. Um, he does his what he'll eventually be really known for the like talking over each other. You don't much like we're doing here and just kind of like, you can't so much as like ADR where it's all the, all the audio is done afterwards. Cause it just sounds so off in a way, like people are, are talking in the background, but you can't, re- you hear them just so clearly in a different way. Um, and yeah, the parody of it, I think it's much more of a parody, but it still has this like very, um, nuanced, like real feel to it. And I mean, taking it from New York and turning it and putting it into uh, Hollywood and like making it all like you just were mentioning the, uh, the guard who's, who's, uh, doing all these impersonations and kind of making it even more surreal. Like, where are we really? There's so much about like the space that doesn't feel like it should exist i mean that whole apartment is is amazing that like elevator to an apartment to the penthouse that's not a real that's just like this little hovel of a place that uh that the mobster loves to like pick on um i i mean Alman just makes this like very real world that's just so fake on top of it like everything just feels like it's not quite the price like he even gould himself he doesn't look like a private eye and she even um our femme fatale says as much like you don't look like what I expected. Uh, so there's, there's a real great play with, with the whole, what we would expect from a hard boiled Rickman Chandler adaptation. And he just kind of like tweaks it every so, every so much to like make it his own little world of what he imagines a, a private eye movie should look like down to, um, that like staccato way of talking that really goes into the jazz that gene was talking about like everything just fe- and then and the one last touch is just that music like bringing that one the one piece of music we really understand is that theme song and it's a, a nice little ode to um orson wells touch of evil where he just wanted any music in the background of the film should actually not be like an orchestrated piece but should also be 
part of the world that he that the characters are in and not so much like this extra layer of what we expect music in a film to be which just makes it such a like real way to like create that all right so Raquel, you know i want to go back to that uh, whole issue of overlapping dialogue dialogue that's also kind of fuzzy and in the background uh dialogue that is often re-recorded outside the shot uh in post and and i i I was wondering what you made of it. It was a technique that Richard Lester was also kind of using in the 70s. Um, sometimes the important things were just not even said in the foreground. I, I wound up sort of thinking this time watching this movie, and I haven't watched it for maybe 30 years. It's 50 years old. That maybe the point of this is there's a lot of noise and not that much signal. Uh, and so it's kind of okay if you can't really understand exactly what people are saying. Yeah, I really thought that that was just an intentional uh, way to sort of make the viewer or confusing. I mean, this this uh, movie was, I think, kind of playing on the, the convoluted plot of The Big Sleep and, in fact, was written by the same screenwriter as The Big Sleep, Lee Brackett, who was a, a space opera queen, a huge sci-fi writer, funny enough, that the, the way so much of this movie is very hard to follow deliberately the way there are so many red herrings, the way the plot ends up almost being a punchline in the end with the conclusion. I I thought it was very deliberate in that. Yeah. You're not supposed to be able to follow this. This is supposed to be a little bit confusing and bewildering in an interesting way. Although I think for me, it, it comes across as, not that hard to follow just because of the way that audio is mixed in film now when you're watching a movie at home i find i always need subtitles on anyway because the way it's mixed now you can't hear anybody in movies anymore so <laughs> like that's just normal for me now <laughs> like oh i can't hear or understand half the dialogue and it, yeah yeah that's pretty standard yeah I, I i think that's it and i i love what you're saying too raquel which is that uh, it kind of doesn't matter how the movie comes out. That's whatever the point of the movie is. That's not the point. Um, I think the point of the movie is the entire process of the movie, you know, and all of the jokes and all the things that are serious and the atmosphere and the strange little throwaways. That's the point of the movie. It doesn't. Well, also, yeah, you know, also, it's it's a mix of of the. You talk about whether it's how much of it is real and artificial, and and the thing that strikes you throughout. Is that the L.A. that he's depicting? The the, the 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 sense of Los Angeles is very very real. Whether it's inside the police station or the jail, whether it's in that 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 weird development he lives in with with the, with the with, with all those goofy neighbors and things, and the supermarket at night, all those things are very real. And that's what sort of teases you into thinking that this is not a spoof, that it is serious, and yet the sight of this guy walking around this paisley environment with a dark suit white shirt black tie throughout with with no with not even even the threat of taking his clothes off never comes through somehow and 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 it's that kind of mix of the artificiality and the and, and the stark reality of the setting that just keeps you on the edge of your seat wondering, okay, how is this going to resolve itself? How is this going to, you know, make sense? And when you accept that it doesn't, it's fine. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It made me think a little bit of Columbo in kind of a funny way mm-hmm. in that you get this very, very New York 
straight out of central casting detective, this little rumpled man in the raincoat. And for some reason, he's in L.A. Yeah, and it makes no sense for a man like, like that to be there. Where it never there rains. And it never rains. Never. You know? And I never. thought the same thing just because maybe Columbo is so much on my mind most of the time and speaking of repeat viewings, but also just like he's the antithesis to like, like he is almost Columbo, but at the same time, not as good of a cop as Columbo was. No. In the <laughs> not, not nearly. He gets no. it wrong until the very end. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, one thing I've never done before, but I did it this time for Raquel. Um, although I was aware that Raquel watches movies that I would be way afraid to watch. Uh, in fact, you watch a lot of movies that I would be too chicken to watch. But there is a scene of extreme violence in this movie, which I think jumps out even more because it is kind of a funny movie most of the time. Uh, and it involves a woman being struck in a very particular way. I can tell you that in 1973, uh, it, it shocked audiences or certain members of the audience. Uh, audience, I, I, you know, I think now it's almost untenable. It's it's a it's a scene you couldn't really have in a movie, not a movie like this one. Uh, but anyway, I actually asked, asked Pants to warn you because <laughs> I didn't want this just like to, you know, you should pardon the expression, hit you in the face. Um, so I don't know. I wonder what you thought of that. We had a little email conversation about Altman's apparent at times misogyny, just generally speaking. But but what did that did did that sort of taint the movie at all for you, Raquel? I mean, it definitely was shocking, and and though I was warned, I I don't think I expected it to be quite as brutal as it is because the movie dwells on it. It's mm. not just this thing happens and then it's over. Like they stay with her as she's she's going she's going through this terrible pain. She gets reconstructive surgery. She reappears in a la- later scene with bandages on her face and like some kind of braces or something in her mouth. So she's talking funny. Like they don't, it's not just a slapstick thing where you trip on a banana peel and you get hurt, but no, you're fine. Like, no, she's very clearly not okay after this. She is not well. And it's very striking. I guess they're going for dark humor. And I'm wondering if they're sort of playing on that, that thing that happens in a lot of movies from the 1940s where a man will just hit a woman. And it's sort of like, yeah, that's okay. And the movie just carries on like in this case, no, we have a man doing an act of violence on a woman and it is very, very much not okay. There are very grim consequences to it and, and she suffers terribly for it. And yeah, I don't really think you could get away with it, at least in live action, maybe on like an adult swim cartoon, perhaps maybe. And that's pretty iffy. I, 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 well, couldn't see a filmmaker getting away with it. Rick and Morty. Rick, Rick does stuff like that. Like that in Rick and Morty. Uh, but yeah. yes, these are cartoons. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I actually think that this the whole thing just played very, very different different from, for me even this time. And and Gene, I thought even in the scene, so we should say that this involves a character named Marty Augustine, who's the Rocky Rococo of this thing. He's the villain. Uh, he's played by Mark Rydell, who among other things directed On Golden Pond. <laughs> <laughs> to think about a movie that has kind of a different tone to it, um, yes. and uh, and it's it is intentionally on Marty Augustine's villainous part um, something he does to illustrate that he's ruthless. He, he says, "Here I love you. I don't even like." And look what I just did to her. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, I when I was in college when I first watched this movie, I don't think I understood just how completely troubling that is. But you can make the argument that Altman wants it to be troubling. Well, 
you can make that argument. I, I misogyny is one word for it. I think that the word I used was misanthropy, um, which was a very hip thing for Hollywood filmmakers to be back then. You think of people like Peck and Paw and some of the kind of uh, hardcore guys guys who did TV for many years, and it kind of warped their whole sense of 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 not just business but life itself. And they brought some of that misanthropy to the movies they made. Altman, especially. I mean, I, I, you mentioned, uh, you mentioned. I think we, we were talking about Mash, the, the first movie mm. that kind of made him famous, also with Elliot Gould. And and you know, when 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 it, and I saw it when I was a teenager, I kind of laughed at all the frat boy humor and some of the some of the humiliation directed at the Sally Kellerman character. I saw it again like ten years ago, and I wasn't laughing at all. I thought I I, I was surprised at how I had changed in the interim in my attitude towards it, and. I had kind of the same reaction you did, an, an intensified revulsion at what I saw, uh, even though, again, uh, I had something of the same reaction that I had back then, which was, well, it's so horrible that you don't know whether to laugh or, or turn away, and you just kind of make, like, you just kind of nervously laugh at it, knowing how horrific it is, and even sensing it even more. So. That that's the kind of prism that you kind of see it through when you see something like that again with 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 so much that's happened in not just movies but in society itself in the intervening years. You know, I do uh, think it's worth ahead. noting that yeah. the screenplay was written by a woman. Mm -hmm. Talking about that incident, so yes, it was. That for me, that does color my interpretation of it a little bit. If it had been a man doing it, it would be one thing, but it was written by a woman who wrote a lot of stories that featured very strong, like warrior women, usually on Mars or something. Right. <laughs> so, so there you go. And a woman, a woman who was who was writing her penultimate screenplay, and the the final one was a Star Wars movie. To go back to yep. the mirrors yeah. initial reference point. So Helder, and I want maybe everybody to quickly talk about this. We're running a little low on time. I think the casting of this is really worth talking about. So Jim Bowden, a baseball pitcher, has you know a pretty significant role, not a lot of screen time, but a pretty significant role in this. And then the rest of the cast, you know, is I don't know, like Sterling Hayden playing kind of a Sterling Hayden -y Hemingway kind of guy. <laughs> Nina Von Palin, who you pointed out in the emails, and I'd had the same thought too, is probably more famous for her role in the Clifford Irving forgery scandal than she is for any acting that she ever did. You know, Gould is sort you know a recognizable actor, and most of the rest of the cast is sort of either and you know the, some of the people also Altman just had some people. The guy who plays. His name is Harry the Hood, who who, yeah. who tails him around. That's like a guy who's just in a lot of Altman movies, and, and, and I think David that's pretty, yeah, he's a good yeah. good call. So I I just maybe say a little bit. Of, this is an unconventional approach. Oh, and we forgot about Henry Gibson. Henry Gibson, he of Laughing, uh, but other things as well, and we, he would well, also go well, on to do other Arnold, Altman stuff. Arnold Schwarzenegger. Arnold Schwarzenegger for a cup of coffee with no lines. Uh, <laughs> so so I don't know, Helder. Say a little bit about how that either impresses or doesn't impress you. I mean, for me, watching it this time around, knowing of a little bit more about the different character actors that were in it. I mean, I think at the time that I first saw it, uh, twenty five years ago when I was in college, Gould, uh, Gold, and uh, Hayden were really the only two that stood out to me at the time. Now, like going, and it's funny because I was a big fan of F for Fake at that time, which features Nina Van Pelton um, due to her role with uh, with Clifford Irving. That I didn't actually associate the two at the time. Now it's like. It's not 
the usual Altman crew that we see all the time, like where he would bring people back, but we start seeing Henry Gibson who will come back uh, to Nashville in a few years after that. Um, it's, I just love watching how Altman takes a cast. That's either like you got a couple of people that are very recognizable. And then the rest are just these like weird characters in the background that we'd never hear about again. Like a lot of those, but then there's Jack Riley at the piano who would, you know, famously go on to be in like Bob Newhart show. And then is in like a, a character actor in all these other sitcoms and shows after that, like he's so recognizable then, but then all we had is like Sterling Hayden and gold playing off of each other's, and Hayden, like you said, Hayden just playing himself as Ernest Hemingway, as a, you know, drunken loud about about to end everything is is well, great. Here's, here's here's an interesting wrinkle to that. Um, originally, and this is true, Altman wanted to cast his good friend Dan Blocker in that in that <laughs> same role. That was the in fact. There's even a note at the end of the cast credits yes. paying tribute to Dan Blocker. Now, imagine if you will, the effect on the on America's tiny little mind seeing Haas Cartwright inhabit that kind of, you know, shell, this grand shipwreck of a man, you know, in this role. I mean, you're not surprised to see Sterling Hayden play that role because he's played variations of that role for decades. But Dan Blocker? I mean, wow. I mean, I mean, it was almost as if he was trying throughout the process of this movie to have these anomalies just scattered all over the place. Yeah, I think that's an Altman thing, though. As I think I said in our emails, you know, Nashville is full of people doing stuff. There was no expectation of Lily Tomlin, you know, given the kind of performance that she gives. People are sort of working kind of outside their comfort zones or they're not even actors or, you know. So I'm assuming if Blocker hadn't died, he would have just given the performance of his life and we would have... I think so, too. I I think so, too. There's a great little twist there where we have Henry Gibson, short little Henry Gibson, kind of taking on Roger Wade and talking him, talking down to him and commanding this like man who towers over him at one point. Slaps him, slaps him, slaps him. And just like (laughs) actually is the one person that can bring Roger Wade's character there down to earth. And uh, and then it does kind of start to unravel some of the little bit of plot where we're like, wait, how is this, you know, Roger Wade? Why is Eileen Wade so in? Still yeah, Raquel, Raquel started to obsess a little bit over uh, Dr. Verringer's bill. Uh, but we're, <laughs> we're going to have to take a little break here so we'll have some time to talk about just the rewatchable experience, to steal Bill Simmons' title, Rewatchables, and why we rewatch them after this. There's a long. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. The FDA has recently approved ZepBound, a new medication for chronic weight management. Dr. Davida Umashankar, Hartford HealthCare's System Medical Director of Medical Weight Loss, tells us more. ZepBound helps decrease hunger and increase satiety levels. Taking this medication for 72 weeks, people can see at the highest dosage approximately 48 pounds of weight loss. So definitely a powerful drug and another powerful tool that we have to utilize to help individuals who struggle with obesity. 
For those ready to explore their medical weight loss options, Dr. Umashankar has advice on the first, most important step. I don't think anyone knows you better than your own primary care physician. So having that conversation whenever you feel ready is so important because these medications are quite powerful and do need to be monitored on a regular basis. To learn more, go to ctpublic.org slash health. All right, we're back. We can do this all day. We can just play versions of this all day. I don't know if Grace and Hugh ever covered the long goodbye, if we can do our outro music that way. But uh, yes, we've, we're done talking about the long goodbye, mostly, with our uh, guests, Raquel Benedict, Helder Mira, and Gene Seymour. But I, I thought it might be interesting to spend the second half of our discussion time just talking about the idea. Bill Simmons and The Ringer, they do have a podcast called The Rewatchables, uh, and they, they uh, rewatch a movie uh, and discuss it uh, in in light of any new apersues that they've come up with or just about the sheer joy of watching it. Um, and I think it's something we all do. Uh, at least I assume it's something we all do. Although, Raquel, I feel like these days we live in such an incredible just, you know, avalanche of new content all the time. Uh, all the streaming services are just putting stuff out there. And there are, you become aware also that somewhere buried inside Amazon Prime or Netflix are 20 movies that you really should have seen, meant to see, you should probably finally see them. So, I don't know. Talk a little bit about what your approach is about rewatching movies. I absolutely love rewatching movies. I, I, I know that a lot of contemporary content is kind of made to be consumed, to be binged on while you're playing on your phone, so you ignore it. But I think the thing that helps me reapproach movies and rewatch them is sharing them with other people, just watching them with other people. Like, hey, this is really good. You guys should see it too. And I usually it's usually the movies I rewatch are movies that I was ambiguous about the first time I watched them, but then I kept thinking about them because some movies you don't really get them all at once. And then on a rewatch, you start realizing, Oh, this is brilliant. It just kind can, of, can you give some examples? Uh, some examples. I think the wicker man, the original one, I mean, the Edward, the Robert? original, yeah. yeah, not the Nick Cage yeah. one, although that one definitely has its charm. <laughs> Nick Cage in a bear suit, in a bear suit, karate kicking oh, women. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of violence against women, but uh, I mean, the first time I saw it, I'm going like, what, what was this? But then I kept thinking about it and I absolutely fell in love with it. And, and the very easy snap judgment is, oh, this cop's a loser. Who cares if he gets killed? And then you're watching it going like, you know, on the other hand. Like, if I had a relative missing, I would want Sergeant Howie looking for them because he is willing to set himself on fire. <laughs> you know what I did? I obsessed about the music on that. There's this kind of weird, pagany sounding British folk music on there. And I spent some time, like quite a bit of time, tracking down <laughs> one of the songs. Oh, it's uh, great. Because I liked it so much. Yeah. Um, so no, that's a, a great example. So how about you, Mr. Mayor? I mean, you've already told us via email. So you, you do it sometimes in the form of ritual. I will say that my son and I 
usually make a point on the 4th of July of watching the movie Independence Day. Not because it's necessarily a great movie, but it's a ritual, right? You get certain things you got to do certain exactly. times. Exactly, and, it, and, it, and like all rituals, it gives a certain coherence to the year. Um, first of all, I, I am married to somebody who hates, hates, hates the idea of me watching a movie again, even, even if it's just once more. It's kind of like... We saw Devil in a Blue Dress last week. Why do you want to see it again? Because we know what happens. We know how it turns out. Yeah, but... Yeah, uh, but Mouse does something really weird. Yes, he does. I, you know, Don, two words, Don Cheadle. That's why. But um, what I mentioned to you in the email was that every New Year's Eve, without fail, for at least the last couple of decades, I make it a point to watch Citizen Kane, which is sort of which sounds like a very banal and corny choice, but let me tell you why I do it. First of all, first time I saw Citizen Kane, I was 15 years old on Channel 8 in New Haven, um, and I'd never seen it before, and I'd never seen anything like it before. And I was I was like, one of the things where I was like, my face was up at the screen staring at it because <laughs> I wondered, what is this? And, you know, people say, well, why do you watch it again? You know what happened? And I said, look, it should be apparent to anybody who knows anything about Citizen Kane now that the least the least important thing about that movie and why it's lasted so long is is the plot, the storyline, and that damn rosebud trope. Nothing that's not the point of it. The point of it is it gets you excited about the possibilities of what movies can do. And it's still to this day makes you realize how did he get away with that? And the fact that somebody so young, so arrogant, so much of anything has, has the audacity to do something just because he, he can. Um, I think it's a great way to start a new year, to be honest with you. I mean, and, and that's why I, without fail, watch it. And at least my wife allows me that. You know, yeah. let, let me just offer you a form of consolation, kind of reverse consolation, because you and I have had similar lives and similar careers, and we're often on deadline or, you know, I mean, Sunday yeah. isn't necessarily a day when we don't have anything to do or, you know, work. We have work to do. And so I live with the opposite kind of person who, if I'm walking by the room that she's in, she's sitting there going, you know, Midnight Run is a really good movie. <laughs> she's watching it, and I don't want to come in there, but I'm like halfway in, and I'm going, you know, Charles Grodin is really, you know, and Yafet Koto yeah. in that scene, Jesus, Dennis Farina. You don't want to live with a person like that, Mr. Mayor, because you will never get any work done. I, uh, yeah, a different movie. I love Citizen Kane, Gene, but the Wells movies that I go back to a lot are F for Fake and, uh, touch of evil i will like sit through those two uh there's just something about like all the nuanced little uh visuals that he throws into both of those movies um but there's so many movies i love to just go back to and watch it and it, it, i think i mentioned it in my email uh response which is some of it's about um just it's comforting it's comforting to like go back to like the story that i know or these visuals or or much like what you just said about uh, Colin about like actors that speak to you that in like dialogue that you hear or even music like um my big comfort sh uh, movies right now uh are the guardians of the galaxy the the trilogy i'm like ready to go actually watch the third one one more time in the theater before it leaves um even though it just opened i saw it opening weekend and, and like i need to go see it again but this time i might actually watch one two and three one two first again at home and then go watch it because there's just something about the worlds that are created within movies that make us feel comfortable. Um, even if they're not 
comfortable movies. Like there's stuff that happens in, in these movies that might make, make us feel, you know, pain or, or emotions that we don't want to feel, but there's something about knowing that that's coming and being able to get through that. Yeah. Um, that really helps me personally. And, you know, just really em embrace the movies and really feel like I'm part of it and it's a world you want to be. And then you just come out and like, I, I can, tell you i will listen to the soundtracks just to sort of remember those visuals and i'm a visual person obviously and i just love to like think about what those scenes are doing and how they make you feel especially like um and like i said the, those three specifically have great soundtracks but yeah uh, or even edgar wright's movies with his soundtracks so yeah. um so Raquel, i think another part of this is and correct me if this let's let's posit that um, that that Edward Woodward Wickerman is possibly a cinema masterpiece. Uh, but I think some of the movies we watch, they don't have to be good. I mean, I, I mentioned in the emails two Patrick Swayze movies, Point Break and uh, and Red Dawn, <laughs> which certainly Red Dawn is not a good movie. John Milius notwithstanding, it's not a good movie. But I don't know, just beats that are in it or whatever. I think there's like stuff we, we go looking for that would be hard to name, but it's not necessarily quality, Raquel. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I will absolutely have my little comfort rewatches of completely trashy slasher movies. Uh, among my favorites is Sleepaway Camp, <laughs> which is a movie made for a budget of approximately $50 <laughs> adjusted for inflation. It is a terrible movie. It is almost irredeemable. And it is what I watch when I'm really depressed because it just always cheers me up. <laughs> <laughs> I love that that cheers you up. Um, it does. It's great. Yeah, I mean, Gene, I, I feel like, you know, some of the movies you name, like, yes, the, watching The Godfather, you know, the, the two Godfather movies is defensible at any given moment because, first of all, you will probably see something that you didn't notice before or remember uh, something that you sir, partially forgot. Sir, sir, you and I have something in common. Yeah. We have both annoyed people in our lives for watching Bad Santa. And, enjoying <laughs> and defending bad santa you and i, I will defend bad santa with you guys yeah. yes I, I was thinking I, about I bad have... santa today i was i was thinking about <laughs> bad santa today because of a different thing I, I was writing and i was thinking about the line i can't actually quote the billy the billy bob thornton line in full but it's basically wish into one hand and poop into the other hand and see which hand fills up first um <laughs> which uh which is no, like but, but, but it's hard to defend that but there's something you be said about letting it grow letting something like that sort of grow inside of you that you can call upon just for the occasions of just resisting and fighting back at anything else that might even bring you down <laughs> yes god help me my son i have infected my son with a love for bad santa he watches it every christmas <laughs> no i i've done my job i have i fulfilled my my parental so is your is your wife the person you annoyed about uh, uh, yeah, at first she's beginning to she's beginning to warm up. She's beginning to tolerate it at this point. So but, I yeah. I have a name droppy story that I have to tell about this, which is uh, I remember there, this, there yes. was a period of time when Rebecca Lobo and I would would often be seeing the same movies or reading some of the same books, and we would just email back and forth about them all the time. And so <laughs> so knowing kind of what she thought about it, I went to see Bad Santa, and I really liked it a lot. Uh, I embarrassed my son by laughing really too hard during the movie, and then I went home and. I emailed um, Rebecca. I said, 
I, I really like Bad Santa. I hope that doesn't make you think less uh, of me. And in two seconds, an email came back saying, couldn't possibly think less of you. Um, so, <laughs> I mean, she's very fast with this kind Sorry of thing. Sorry about that. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, but there's certain parts in life where, where as, you, as you've said, Raquel, you just have to stop saying you're sorry, okay? This, <laughs> yep. this, is, this, is, this, is, this is what it is, okay? This is, and this is a part of who we are. And that's the essence of the rewatchable, of, of the rewatchables that we cherish, that this is a part of what we have become. And I, and I think it's precisely the fact that rewatching is, 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 except in certain circles, diminished. That's why movies today suffer from that, because people think it's just a ride you go on and that's it. Uh, but it's not just a ride. There's stuff happening in each of those experiences that's tangible and real. And, and, and if movie making was was attentive to that, we'd get better movies, I, mm. I'd like to think. Yeah, know? yeah. And, I, you know, um, Raquel, one thing that Holder was talking about, or no, I guess Gene was talking about it, but it made me realize, like a movie that I'm probably never going to rewatch is Sixth Sense because in Sixth Sense yeah. the ro- rosebud kind of is the movie, That's you right. know. If and once you know that, I'm not saying there aren't any little cool touches in it, Raquel, but I, I feel like a movie that's hyper dependent on a reveal is going to be less attractive to to watch. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, yeah. <laughs> All right. So I'll take that as an affirmation. All right, we're going to take a little break here. We got to have some time to recommend some stuff to you, and that is what we will do after the proverbial this. There's a long goodbye And it happens every day When some passerby Invites your eye to come In the U.S., we tend to think of slavery as a Southern thing. Slavery in New England has been intentionally erased. The story we tell is this is family slavery. So it comes off as very benign and not dehumanizing. Coming March 18th, a special series, Unforgotten, Connecticut's Hidden History of Slavery. Visit ctpublic.org unforgotten. Funding provided by the Wadsworth Athenaeum Museum of Art and the Amistad Center for Art and Culture. Connecticut's own Jacques Pepin is a culinary icon. When you make a contribution to Connecticut Public today, you can experience a -a once-in-a-lifetime dinner with the acclaimed PBS chef and author on Monday, May 6th at the gorgeous Oceanfront Madison Beach Hotel in Madison, Connecticut. Sponsored by Isana Plastic Surgery Center and Med Spa and Fuchs Financial. For tickets, visit ctpublic.org slash Pepin. All right, time to make some recommendations. But first, time to thank the wonderful cat pastor. She's our technical producer, the person who's been playing versions of the same song all all day long and has not complained once about it. Uh, also, thanks to Dylan Ray's down there in Virginia, who's a man on a mission picking up Billboard music for us. 
that causes me to jumpstart my brain in a different way. And special, special thanks to Mr. McPants. Jonathan McPants is the producer of this episode and pretty much every Nose episode. Our wonderful panel today is Raquel Benedict, Helder Mira, and Gene Seymour. Raquel, why don't you go first? Are you going to recommend some scary, horrible movie made for $75? Absolutely, I am. I'm going to recommend <laughs> two different scary, horrible things. Uh, one is a book. It's called Help Meet, and it's by Canadian horror author uh, Nabin Ruthnam. It's about a woman taking care of her husband's very strange ailment. It takes place in the early 1900s, and it's a story of love and body horror. And the other thing that I'm going to uh, recommend is a horror movie made by made for probably $55 instead. <laughs> it actually has a decent budget behind it called Nocebo. It came out about a year ago. And it's about a rich Irish lady who tries to girl boss her way back to health with the help of a Filipino uh, caregiver who is slightly, slightly more than she seems to be. It's quite good. All right. And the first one is called Help Meet? Help Meet. All right. Um, all right. Well, uh, and uh, Helder Mira, what are you going to recommend to us? So bouncing off of a long goodbye, I'm going to recommend uh, the graphic novel Hawkeye, L.A. Woman by Matt Fraction and Annie Wu, which takes the um, Kate Bishop Hawkeye, which is the younger of the new Hawkeye superheroes, uh, sets her, moves her to L.A., where she inevitably or somehow runs into a version of Elliot Gould, Elliot Gould's um, Philip Marlowe, which is kind of fun. They even mm-hmm. Annie Wood illustrates him just like in they even meet in the cat food aisle of the uh, of the shop that they're in. So it, it's it's a, a really wonderful take on that. It's not so much about that. It's about other things that happen in into her world. And then on streaming, I would recommend um, two things, which is Jury Duty. If you haven't seen that, it's a great documentary that's out there on uh free freebie i think yep. and uh, the new season of documentary now is out on netflix and the first two episodes are like are, were tailor made for me they're uh alex bono and um, john mulaney uh wrote a really great piece about uh spoofing burden of dreams about Werner herzog's uh trials trying to make um Fitzcarraldo. This is about another German filmmaker, wonderfully portrayed by Alexander Skarsgård mm. as his. I can't wait. All right, so um, so yeah, docu- documentary now. Uh, by the way, we're going to do jury duty. I think maybe next week, if very soon, we're going to do jury duty on the nose. Um, oh, all right, so Gene Seymour, what are you going to uh, recommend, Mr. Mayor? The, the mayor will be will try to be as brief as possible. Once again, uh, the Jazz Journalists Association of America announced their annual awards this year. I shall not give you all of them, but I'm going to re- recommend two of the award-winning uh, thingies. Uh, for Best Historic Album, for instance, there's this uh, quite revelatory uh, two two album set of Ahmad Jamal, who, as, as most of you know, passed away last month at 92. Um, it's called Emerald City Nights, and it's a collection of live shows that he did in the mid 60s at the seattle jazz club called the penthouse and you know you think you you think you know if you know ahmad jamal from the album that he made at at uh, at uh, in chicago with Ponciana on it it's got a lot of that but it has things that he does with the piano trio that are really astonishing and and that that weren't really known at the time. So that's an example of, a, of an old recording that gives you all this new stuff to think about. 
And the other award winner I'm going to mention is kind of a self-promotion. Um, it's a collection of interviews called Ain't But a Few of Us, Black Music Writers Tell Their Story. It was edited by Willard Jenkins, who's a, uh, a Washington, D.C.-based disc jockey and jazz critic himself. And he interviewed a bunch of us Black music writers who've dealt with jazz um, over a period of like 10 years. Uh, not just me, yes, but people like uh, Greg Tate, who some of you mm -hmm. may know of, and uh, others. And he also has written, you know, he also has included essays about jazz written by musicians, including one by, wait for it, Wayne Shorter. Hmm. Um, so this is a book, this is a book we're talking about. This is a book, yes. It's called Ain't But a Few of Us. It's not just a contribution to jazz literature, but it's also a contribution to American letters because uh, it, 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 it unearths a part of, you know, criticism, his, history of criticism, of American criticism, that up to now has been kind of buried or taken for granted. And I'd say that even if I wasn't in it. So <laughs> those so those are the two things it's, I'm looking at. It sounds great. So I'll do a, just a very quick, uh, and once again, kind of a name droppy thing too. So every year for many years, we would take this show up to the Berkshire International Film Festival in Great Barrington. We would do a live show from the festival and kind of just people would pop by and um, we would just chat and stuff. And so one year, Jim Bouton was uh, there for the Battered Bastards of Baseball, uh, and, in which he doesn't play that big a role, but he's a big selling point for the movie. That's what I'm going to endorse, the Battered Bast Bastards of Baseball. It's more about Kurt Russell and especially his incredibly colorful father, Bing. It is the ultimate you know, Island of Misfit Toys sports story come true. You don't have to know anything about baseball or even like baseball to love this movie. I have proved this several times by showing it to people who fell into the category of not knowing anything about or caring anything about baseball, and they were just dizzy with enjoyment from this. So uh, I'm going to recommend it. It is on a, an obscure streaming platform called Netflix. I think they still have it. Uh, and really, if, if you if you need you need to change your mood. You know, you're like in a bad mood. You're scared. You're worried. Something like that. I, I can almost guarantee you. And it's it's a true story that just shouldn't possibly be true. Anyway, thanks very much to this uh, amazing panel. Thanks to Raquel Benedict, Helder Mira, and Gene Seymour. Thanks to everybody else. Uh, thanks to Cat Pastor and Mr. McPants. And we are going to say bye bye. <laughs> <laughs>